I want to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter today as we continue through the text. My name is Matt Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Sagemont Church. It's an honor to be with you. Um, we're going verse by verse to the book of 1 Peter. And for the last two weeks, we've looked at what the Scripture says is our response to the fact that we've been given this great salvation. And he says that our response, what we're called to do in light of our salvation, is to live lives of holiness. So let's read 1 Peter 1.14. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Okay? So that's the calling, holiness. Now what Peter's going to do in the next three verses, 16 through 19, is he's going to talk about why holiness in particular is the response we should give to our salvation. We're going to look at three reasons why holiness matters in our lives. Okay? Now before I jump into Peter's three reasons why holiness matters and is our response to our salvation, I want to talk about why I think this is an appropriate topic for us to discuss in sort of the modern church. And it's this, that in my opinion, I think if there's any topic in modern Christianity, if there's any aspect of the Christian life that the American church has largely neglected to talk about over the last 20 years, it's the call on the life of every believer to live a life of obedience and holiness unto God. Now, if you've been going to church here at Sagemont, that's not been your, your, the case here because we talk about it here. Pastor John was good about that, but the overwhelming majority of preachers in the United States simply don't talk about it. As a matter of fact, if you go to like the iTunes Christian podcast and look at the top 100 preachers, most popular preachers in the U.S., there's maybe seven or eight of them that I'm aware of that you'll ever hear talk about repentance of sin, holiness, our calling to live lives of obedience, etc. But what you will hear them preach on is subjects and topics like being a better person, living a good life, um, following your dreams, and my personal favorite, um, finding your destiny. Anybody ever heard that from modern preachers, finding, finding your destiny? I, I have a doctorate in biblical exposition. I have no idea what that means, finding your destiny. But you hear it preached about all the time. Now listen, all that stuff out there that's being preached on, it's not necessarily wrong, it's just marginally biblical. And when you read the Bible from cover to cover, what you're going to find is that the call on our lives to live lives of holiness set apart for the singular purpose of glorifying God is spoken about literally a thousand to one compared to following your dreams. Now here's the result of, of this kind of pop Christianity teaching in our culture, is that if you go to the book of Acts, and you do a study on what did the Christian, what did their lives look like as a Christian in the first century church, what you'll discover is that when you compare that to the lives of 21st century Christians, they really don't look anything alike. And that with the exception of maybe church attendance, a large majority of Believers in the United States, our lives really don't look all that different from the world's. And the implications of that, I think, are pretty enormous. And I want to talk about one of them for a second. It's a well-documented reality that Generation Z, which is what they're calling the, the, the youngest generation, so Gen Z and Millennials, it's a well-documented reality that they're leaving the church in droves. There was a recent study by Lifeway Research that I came across when I was writing my last book 
And in this study, they talked about the four primary reasons why young people that grew up in Christian homes, once they got into college, got away from their mom and dad, left the church. Now, I'm not going to talk about all four, but I'm going to give you one that hits closest to home. A huge percentage of the young people in the study that grew up in Christian homes but left the church said this was one of the primary reasons that they left. They said they left because they didn't, check this out, don't miss this, this is crazy. So what the study said. Said they left because they didn't have any true examples in their lives of what a committed disciple of Christ looked like. Now keep in mind, there's kids that grew up in the church. But they, but they said that they left the church because they'd never seen anyone. They couldn't give a single example of anyone that lived out an authentic, compelling, biblical picture of Christianity where Jesus was the center of their lives. And so what that means is that these are kids that had parents and that had grandparents that made their jobs, they made their hobbies, they made their families the center of their life with a little Jesus thrown in on Sundays. And so when these kids grew up, and they had to make the decision of whether or not to go to church, they thought to themselves, what's the point? What's the point? And so they, they chose to sleep in or go to brunch or to spend weekends on the lake instead of engaging in the life of the church. And that was convicting to me personally because I know that I have a bad habit along with many others of sort of looking down at the millennial generation and shaking their heads and going, oh, those sorry millennials, they're leaving the church in droves. But instead, what we ought to be doing is looking at ourselves as parents and grandparents and millennials and Gen Z and asking ourselves the question, am I living an authentic, compelling, biblical picture of Christianity that my children and my grandchildren can look at and say, that's a life worth living? So the title of this sermon is, Does Holiness Really Matter? Peter says it does. He's going to give us three reasons why that is our response to the fact that we've been saved. Let's jump in. Go to 1 Peter 1.15. 1 Peter 1.15. Peter said, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, guys, verse uh, 16, Peter preached, or uh, not Peter, Pastor Freeman preached on verse 16 last week, and, um, and as he was preaching, I thought about something that I had never thought about before, kind of hit me, and I'm going to dig into that just for a minute. In verse 16, Peter is quoting God from the book of Leviticus, that for you, you are to be holy because I'm unholy, that's God speaking in the book of Leviticus, and, and what God was saying, he was speaking to his people, and he said, the reason I want you to live lives of holiness, God said, because I'm holy. Now, I was thinking about it all week. I was like, why in particular does God give that as the reason for our holiness? That, that you are to live a life of holiness, I'm, I'm to live a life of holiness, God says, because I'm holy, I want you to do it. And here's sort of what hit me. That one of the best indicators of the character and nature of a child, or rather, let me say this, one of the best indicators of the character and the nature of a parent is the behavior of their children. So in other words, if you want to know what a parent's like, it's not always the case, but if you want to know what a parent's like, look at the behavior of their children. A lot of times, kids' behavior reflects the character and nature of a parent. A couple of weeks ago at my son's football game, one of my good buddies who happens to go to Sagemont here, we were talking, and his son walked up. And 
his son and I sort of entered into a really quick conversation and a couple of things stood out to me. Number one is this young man, when, when he came up to me, he looked me in the eye and held out his hand when he shook my hand. So he was like, how, how are you doing, Pastor? And, and that's rare for young men to look you in the eye and, and when they shake your hand. And when I started talking to him, I would ask him these questions and he would answer with yes, sir, and no, sir. And what was the first thing that sort of went through my mind about this kid was, man, my friend is doing an incredible job of raising this young man. Because whether we like it or not, the behavior of our children is a direct reflection of the character and nature of us as parents. And the same is true for our Heavenly Father. Now listen, God calls us to live lives of holiness because when we do, it reflects His character and His nature to a watching world. Okay, now, why does that matter? Okay, so here's the first reason Peter gives for why holiness matters. Reason number one, if you're taking notes. Our holiness demonstrates to the world the character and nature of our Heavenly Father. So our holiness, when we live that out, it reflects the character and the nature of God who is holy. Now, here's the question. Why do you think God thinks it's so critical for that particular aspect of his character and nature to be seen through us? Why does God want the world to see and understand his holiness? And here's the answer to that question. There are things that God does that makes absolutely no sense apart from his holiness. There are things that the Lord does, there are things in the scripture that apart from his holiness make absolutely no sense whatsoever, one of them being the cross. The cross of Jesus makes no sense apart from the holiness of God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. About a year ago, actually it's about two years ago, there was a pretty famous contemporary Christian artist that he came out and he made a crazy statement publicly. He said that he thought that Christians ought to stop teaching on the blood of Jesus and the cross as the forgiveness of sins through God. He, he taught that, that Christians ought to stop teaching and preaching about Jesus shedding his blood and his death on the cross. And the reason that he gave for why we ought to stop teaching about the blood of Christ and, and the cross, and this is what he said, he said, God is not a child abuser. God's not a child abuser. He said, God is God of love. God would never cause all that suffering on his son in order to bring us back in relationship with him. Now, Sagemont, there's only one or two reasons why someone that is a believer would ever say something like that. Number one is that he's never read the Bible and that he's basing his view of God on how he feels like God ought to be instead of what the scripture actually says. And the other reason, and it's the only other reason is this, is he's saying that because he doesn't understand the holiness of God. You cannot understand the purpose of the cross apart from God's holiness. Now to understand that, I want to take you for a second to the Garden of Gethsemane. So the night before Jesus was betrayed, he takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, he kind of puts them over to the side, and he goes by himself to pray. He gets down on his hands and his knees, and he cries out to God. And he said, God, is there any other way to do this? It, God, he said, if it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Third time, it was so intense 
that he's sweating drops of blood as he's crying out to God. Essentially, what he's saying is, Father, if there, is there any other possible way for, for me to atone for the sins of our people apart from me going to the cross? And three times God says, my son, there is no other way. And Jesus said, Lord, Father, it is not my will, but your will be done. And then Jesus stood up and he never wavered again and he willingly walked to the cross and he shed his blood and he died to pay for your sin and my sin. Now, there's only one of two reasons that God said to Jesus, this is the only way. There's only one of two reasons that the Father said to the Son, there is no other way but the cross to pay for the sin of the people. Number one, as the contemporary Christian artist said, that God is a cosmic child abuser which is dumb. Or, or, because God is a God of infinite holiness. Hear this. Because God is a God of infinite holiness. When we sinned against Him, we earn for ourselves an infinite death penalty that had to be paid. Okay? Now, what I just said at the end of the day is a concept that all of us understand. And so I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. I'm going to explain to it because explain it because God is a God of infinite holiness. When we sinned against Him, we earned an infinite death penalty that had to be paid. Now, here's why this makes sense for, uh, to all of us, really. And I want to explain it to you. And I want you to listen very carefully to this next sentence. When you sin, when you sin, the penalty for your sin is always proportional to the authority of the person you sin against, okay? Whenever you sin, the penalty you have to pay to the person you sin against is always in proportion to the authority of the person you sin against. And I'm gonna explain what that means, okay? Let's pick a sin that everybody here has probably committed at some point in time in your life, and that's the sin of lying, deceiving. We've all done it at some point in time in our life. It's a sin. One of the Ten Commandments. So let's pick somebody that, that we sometimes in our flesh might say a falsehood to, and that's our spouse. Let's so say you lie to your spouse. What is the penalty for you lying to your spouse? Well, you lose trust, okay? You lose trust with your spouse. You, you have to apologize. You have to repent of your sin. Now, here's the thing. You sin against your spouse, the sin of lying, but the penalty you have to pay is really not all that crazy severe. Your spouse is important, but the penalty is not crazy severe because her authority or his authority in your life is, is, is not that high. Sin of lying, have to repent, say you're sorry. Now, as the authority of the person you sin against goes up, so does the penalty. So let's raise the authority a little bit here. Um, let's say you lie, but this time you don't lie to your spouse, you lie to your boss. Has a little bit more authority in your life than your spouse. What happens when you lie to your boss? You lose your job. It's the same exact sin, but the penalty is higher because when you sin, the, the, it, the penalty for your sin is always proportionate to the person you've sinned against. And so when the authority grows, the penalty for your sin grows. And so let's raise the authority again. Let's say you lie, but this time you lie to a grand jury. You're a witness in a grand jury trial and you lie under oath. What's the penalty? You go to jail. You go to jail, same exact sin, 
but the authority of the grand jury is higher than your boss, and so the penalty is greater. You don't just lose your job, but you go to jail. Penalty's higher. Let's raise the authority again. Let's say um, this time you don't lie to a grand jury, but you lie to the president of the United States of America. Okay, let's say I'm a hypothetical situation here. So you're working for the government, you have a top secret clearance, and you make the decision to give the nuclear codes of the United States to some foreign country. The president challenges you, and you deceive him. You lie to him. You commit treason. What's the penalty? You go to jail for life. And maybe you just don't go to jail for life, but you might get the death penalty. Why? It's the exact same sin. You lied. You deceived. Why do you get the death penalty? Because this time, you deceived the president and the government of the United States. And so the, the, the punishment for your sin is always in proportionate, proportionate to the authority of the person you've sinned against. So let's raise the authority one final time. He's the one person in the world that has a higher authority in your life than the president of the United States. It's God. It's God. So when you commit the sin of lying, at the end of the day, the scripture tells us you ultimately sinned against God. Now here's the question. What kind of authority does God have? Church, God's authority isn't just big. God's authority is infinite. His authority is infinite. God's authority makes the authority of the President of the United States look like a drop of water in the Pacific Ocean. And so if the punishment for our sin is always in proportion to the authority of the person you sinned against, church, what happens when you sin against the God of infinite authority? The penalty that you and I earn is infinite death. But Matt, God's loving. He's loving. How could he give us an infinite death sentence? He's a God of love. How, how could he do that? How could that be the penalty for our sin? Well, here's the thing, church. Yes, God is a God of love, but the scripture also tells us he is a God of justice. He's a God of justice. I don't have time to go into it. But because he is a God of justice, the penalty for our sin must be paid for. It has to be paid for, or he's not a God of justice. Now listen. But instead of us having to pay the infinite death penalty for our sin that all of us earned. In the most loving act in the history of the universe, God came to this earth himself. And he paid our infinite death penalty for us on the cross of Jesus Christ by shedding his blood to atone for our sin. The cross was Jesus paying our infinite death penalty with his blood. Here is the point, is that the most, one of the most crucial things in all of Christianity, the cross and the resurrection, makes no sense whatsoever, apart from the holiness of God. And that is why God says to us, I want you to be holy. I want you to be holy. God says, because I'm holy. And we have to show the world what the Lord looks like. So that's the first reason. Let's look at the second reason why you and I are to live lives of holiness. Reason number two, Peter's about to give us. This is a difficult one. Reason number two, holiness spares us 
from the discipline of the Lord. Our holiness spares us from the discipline of the Lord. Let's look at verse 17. Peter's addressing this. He said, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And so Peter's given us the second reason why holiness is critical in your life, in my life, and he starts off by saying that you and I are to conduct ourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth. Now, most preachers right here, what they're going to do is they're going to start trying to explain away the word fear. And they're going to tell you, now listen, that word fear doesn't really mean fear. It means reverence. It means awe. But the problem with that is that's not what the word means. There is a Greek word for reverence and awe. It's you, I uh, can't even pronounce it, euabia. Peter uses that word in other places when he's talking about reverence and awe. The writer of Hebrews uses that word, talking about reverence and awe. Peter doesn't use euabia. He uses the Greek word there, phobos. Y'all, y'all know where he's going with the phobos word? Phobos is a Greek word where we get our English word Phobia which is a word that doesn't mean reverence and awe. It's a word that means fear. In some places, it's actually used as terror. Now listen carefully here. Peter is not saying that we should be afraid of God. God loves us. He's our Father. Because of the blood of Jesus, the Scripture teaches us we can go confidently before the throne of grace. And so what Peter's saying here is not that we should be afraid of God. What Peter says is that we should conduct ourselves in fear. We should conduct ourselves in fear. In other words, you and I need to be genuinely fearful about the way that we live. We ought to take it really seriously. Now why? Why should you and I take so seriously the way that we live? We should literally be afraid about the way that we are living. Why do we do that? Look at the text again, he tells us. 1 Peter 1.17. He said, if you address as Father the one, watch, here's the answer, who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. So Peter says, you need to be genuinely fearful about the way you're living your life Because you have a father that even though you are his child, he still is going to impartially judge the way that you live. Now let's unpack that a little bit. Um, One of the things I'm realizing about parents is that parents are horrible judges of their own children's character. Have you noticed that? Parents are horrible judges of their own children's character. We got any teachers in here? Raise your hand. Can I get an amen? So you, you, you got this kid in your class, and he's pretty much Satan incarnate, right? And so you got to call mom and go, mom, need to let you know, little Johnny is the devil. And what's her response? Her response is not, oh, you know what, thank you, I know he's the devil, but look, we're working, we're praying. He doesn't, she doesn't do that, she's shocked. She's like, What? My, Johnny, he's an angel. There's a problem. The problem's with you, teacher, right? Because parents are notoriously horrible judges of their children's character. And so what Peter's saying here is, look, that's not how God works. Yes, he's our father, but 
Watch. Look at verse 17 again. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. Here's the point. If you're here today and God is your Father, look, He loves you. He is crazy about you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're saved, you are going to heaven when you die. But what Peter is teaching here is that even if God is your Father, you should live your life so seriously that you could conduct yourselves in fear. Why? Because He watches the way that you live and He judges that impartially. Now, not talking about eternal judgment. Because we know that our eternal uh, judgment is secure in Jesus Christ. And so what does he mean that God will impartially judge us? Well, the word judge there, hear this. The word judge is a Greek word that means to evaluate. It's real simple. It means to evaluate. And so Peter's literally saying there, even though God's your dad, even though you're his child, he is going to impartially evaluate the way that you live. Now, does that mean if we're not living in a Christ-like way, if we're not walking in holiness, that God's going to punish us? No. All of our punishment was placed upon Jesus at the cross. Amen. So what he's not, he's not talking about punishment for our lack of holiness, but he is talking about discipline because of our lack of holiness. Let me read it to you. Don't turn there, but just check this out. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, it says, look, if you're his son, if you're his daughter, he's going to bring discipline into your life. Not punish you, but he will discipline you because he loves you. Now, why does he do that? Why does he discipline his sons and his daughters? Look at verse 11. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Scripture's teaching us that holiness is so important to God in your life that when it's not there, He will discipline you so it will bring that holiness in your life, which the Scripture says is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I think that um, discipline, the discipline of the Lord is something we don't like to think about. But it's crystal clear, we lack holiness, He disciplines us. And what I think we got a bad habit of doing is when the discipline sometimes of the Lord comes in our life, we have a bad habit of blaming Satan. Is that something's not right in our lives. Maybe it's our marriage, maybe it's our finances, maybe it's our job, whatever. And what do we do? We go, Satan's attacking me. And that very well may be true. You may be experiencing an attack of the enemy. But what also may be true is that there's an area of your life where you're walking in holiness. The Spirit's reminded you you've ignored it. And the Lord is bringing discipline in your life in order to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, in the life, this, this is important here. In the life of a believer, holiness does not always guarantee physical blessing. That's the health and wealth gospel. But, but in the life of a believer, a lack of holiness does guarantee the discipline of the Lord. 
if you continue in that unholiness. And so if there's an area of your life, church, that God is not blessing, one of the best things you could ever do is ask yourself the question, am I walking in holiness in this area of my life? If your marriage is not where you want to be, where you want it to be, a good first step is not to blame the enemy, it's not to blame your spouse, but really evaluate, am I walking in a Christ-like way in this area? If your finances aren't where you need to be, maybe that's an attack of the enemy. Maybe it's in situation outside of your control. But a good first step is to say, God, am I honoring you? And am I, am I conducting my behavior in a Christ-like way in, in, in my life, in this area of my life? And I think this is biblical as it can be. The scripture says that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth so that he might strongly support those whose heart is what? Completely his. And so if you don't see the strong support of the Lord in your life in a certain area, I think what Peter's saying here is conduct yourselves in fear during your stay on earth because your Father impartially judges each one according to His works. So reason number one why holiness matters is our holiness reflects the character and nature of God to a watching world, which is critical. Reason number two why holiness matters is our holiness spares us from the discipline of the Lord in our lives. Now here's reason number three. Holiness matters because of the price Jesus paid for your salvation. I'm almost done. We're we're, going to be done here really quickly. But this is a critical one. Peter's going to tell us that one of the reasons that you, by the power of the Spirit in your life, must be committed to living in a Christ-like way in all of your behavior is because of the value of the price that was paid for your salvation. And so let's read this. 1 Peter 1.17. Peter says, If you address his Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? Verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This is really simple. Peter's saying, look, you walk out those doors, you walk out these doors, and by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you live a life of holiness for this reason, because you were not redeemed, your sins were not paid for with silver and gold, you're Your sins were paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on a cross. But you're saying, for crying out loud, he shed his blood for you. So walk in holiness. I think Peter's saying that the next time you're tempted to look at pornography, stop and remember that he shed his blood to free you from that sin. And in that moment, choose holiness. Peter's saying that the next time you're tempted to walk around and think that you're better than someone else or treat someone else harshly. Remember the humility it took for the King of kings and the Lord of lords to allow his creation to drive nails through his hands and his feet. And in that moment, choose holiness. I think Peter's saying that the next time you're tempted not to offer someone forgiveness because they've wronged you. Remember that you wronged God. 
And when you did, you earned infinite and eternal death. But He shed His blood for you so that you could receive infinite and eternal life. And when you remember that, choose holiness. Peter's saying that every single time you're tempted to sin, remember that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from the futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Remember that and choose holiness. I'll end with this. I hear a lot of talk out there, in here, about our need for revival which I happen to agree with. Our country's falling apart. I think the only thing that's going to turn it around, I really am convinced of this, I think the only thing that's going to turn our country around, one of two things, Jesus comes back, or there is a massive revival in our country. If it doesn't happen, I think it's going to get bad. A lot of talk about revival, and it's a good thing, but here's what I'm convinced of before we will ever see a revival of lost souls outside of these doors, there needs to be a revival of holiness inside these doors of the church. And it starts with me. I think Ann Graham Watts said it best, revival begins when you draw a circle around yourself and make sure that everything inside of that circle is right with God. world's watching. More importantly, our children are watching. Our grandchildren are watching. When they see us, let them see a people set apart for the singular purpose of glorifying God.